I started uh, Gag Me With a Spoon because I really love to, I love to hear people's personal stories. I think we're more fascinating than fiction. And I really like the community building aspect of in a small town like Duluth, Minnesota, where you think you know everybody, you don't know everybody. And you get to know people on a little deeper level and share vulnerability and grow as a community in the day and age of Facebook. Um, I think it's a connecting thing to share our stories and something we've been doing throughout history. So I'm trying to kind of bring that into my life and hopefully share that with others. Yes, I usually perform stand-up comedy because there's only um, two ways to open people up to new ways of thinking. You can either be a trusted advisor or you can make people laugh. Um, laughing releases chemicals in the brain and it, it makes embracing novel situations less threatening. And when I perform, one of the things I first tell people is, what I tell the audience is that I'm transgender and I'm 55 years old. I always quickly get that out in the open because I know some people are uncomfortable sharing a restroom with someone as old as I am. <laughs> <laughs> but when, when Adeline invited me tonight, she made it clear in her gentle but uniquely firm way <laughs> not to do stand-up. She wanted me to talk about some of my experiences, and oh yeah, you have seven minutes. So uh, in 1964, a doctor did a, a five-second visual inspection and uh, declared, it's a boy. That uh, classification threw me into a valley from which it's taken me literally a lifetime to climb free. Uh, 10 years after I was born, I'm confident there were more humans alive on this planet that had walked on the moon than who had successfully overcome extreme gravitational pressure <laughs> of their assigned gender role. Uh, so I consider many transgender people to be like space explorers, sort of like gender knots. Uh, people ask me, when did I transition? My physical transition, the part that everybody sees, happened in 2013, but I think my transition really started the day I was born. Uh, it's one of my earliest memories. Uh, it's affected every part of my life. And I would like to be able to talk about my earliest years and how I was socialized as male, but I only have seven minutes, so I'm going to skip that part. <laughs> I would also like to talk about the recommended course of treatment for transgender people in the 1960s and 1970s with electroshock therapy and antipsychotic drugs or just killing us. But due to time, I'm going to skip that too. Uh, I would also like the opportunity to talk about the importance of genitalia in our society. I mean... We humans are fixated on genitalia so much that we have parties called gender reveals, or as I call them, genitalia reveals. Um, I mean, because that's what they really are, right? Uh, we, we set off fireworks, and if the fireworks are blue, then the baby has a penis. It's a party for a penis. <laughs> Uh, I mean, how much do we care about genitalia? I mean, everyone in this room is required by law to carry around a little card so that a bank officer or a police officer can say, well, 
judging by your appearance <laughs> and the way you're dressed, I think you might have a vagina, but I want to be sure, so could I please see your card? And sure enough, they're on the driver's license or the passport or the birth certificate is that M or that F, which is really just telling us your genitalia, right? So like all humans, I'd love to talk about genitalia, but I'm going to skip that too. What, <laughs> what seems like the same topic, but it's not the same, is the concept of what makes a man a man and a woman a woman. You know, what is that line of demarcation? A court in Sweden recently decided that it's not genitalia, it's not genetics, it's not menstruation, or the ability to set up whole house Wi-Fi. The court decided what puts women in a unique group is levels of testosterone, uh, specifically five nanomoles per liter of blood. Uh, if you have more than that, they're not sure what you are, but you're not a woman. Um, it's what the court concluded, and I think it's an interesting commentary on our society, but I'm going to skip that too. One, talk about I'd, one, one topic I'd love to talk about, having seen both sides, is what I've seen as the differences between men and women. I mean, we all know that women face discrimination. Uh, all women know that we face discrimination. But how strong is it? I um, think that, generally speaking, it's about 10 to 15 times more extreme than most women realize. And I'm not convinced most men accept the fact that women face discrimination at all, or if they do, it's very little. Uh, but I'm not going to talk about those experiences either. What I, what I am going to talk to you about for the remaining four minutes <laughs> is um, the moment that, a moment that happened to me this month. Um, it lasted about three minutes, and, um, and then I'm going to finish up with a short poem that, uh, that it inspired. Uh, after I've described the experience to some of my other friends, they've asked me if the man in the story was mentally ill. Uh, no, I learned from the restaurant staff afterwards that, it, that he was part of a larger group of men out partying for the evening. The group included a commercial real estate broker, a pediatrician, and other professionals in the area. And it's my impression the only, only influencing effects on the gentleman's brain at that time were just alcohol and testosterone. <laughs> Uh, they had been at the restaurant for a few hours, and they were getting ready uh, to leave when the man walked up to me, and he stared down at me, and he said, <coughs> I know you're a man. I'm like, what? Actually, I was like, what? He goes, I know you're a man. Uh, no, no, I'm not. Yes, yes, you are. No, I'm not. What makes you say that? I just know. I can tell. Why did you think it was important to walk up to me across the restaurant and tell me this? Because I want you to know you're not tricking me. Tricking you? Yes, you're not tricking me. You're not going to trap me. Why do you think I want to trick you? And then he gestured, uh, sweeping his hand from my head down my body up back up to my face. Well, why are you here? So the, the, the only reason he seemed to think that I was there at that restaurant <laughs> was to abduct him or t turn him gay. I don't know what. 
And so uh, I've been thinking about that, uh, and I haven't been able to stop thinking about it, and how he perceived me as the predator. And uh, I originally wrote a joke about the interaction that was um, how he was able to delineate between men and women was by the talent of interior decoration, which is something with which only women are born. But I thought that that joke didn't accurately reflect how dark I felt the interaction was. Um, and so I, I took another look at it um, from what might be the mindset of a sexual predator, uh, driven to fulfill desire, but from a female perspective. Um, and warning, this poem, this poem is short, but it does have images of sexual assault. Um, <coughs> I finally got me something I've always wanted. I got me a male sex slave. He's so cute. And he tells me that he'll do anything I want him to do if I would just put down the gun. I've heard that relationships like this can be consensual, but I'm sorry. <laughs> that just doesn't turn me on. Because if they're not scared, they're not shaking. And if they're not shaking, <laughs> then there's no motion in the ocean, if you know what I mean. Because there's nothing I find more stimulating than the involuntary spasms of fear rubbing against my clit. <laughs> Thank you very much. You guys are great. my whole life and I've never been as nervous as I am tonight. I don't get nervous on stage normally, but when you're talking from your own life. So, anyways. Um, for the last three years, I cut my mother out of my life. It's probably the most, the healthiest thing I've ever done. Um, if you've seen Mommy Dearest, she makes her look like um, a saint. So, my story tonight is how I've overcome a toxic relationship with a person who I shouldn't have had to do. So I'm just going to give you a little, ooh, sorry. It's fine. Um, There's all kinds of cries. Uh, <laughs> and I'm having a hot flash, so it doesn't help. So <laughs> woo, just bring it on. Okay. So I'm just going to kind of give you a little history of my life. Um, my parents were divorced when I was five. And um, my mother at that time was an alcoholic and a drug user, and I didn't know that, because why would you? You're a kid, I was about five. And Mother's Day in my house was always very stressful because you never gave her the right card or the right present, and she could go violent in two seconds flat. Um, it was like if the sun shone on you and she was in a good mood and showed you love, it was the best day ever. And if she was in a bad mood, watch out. Um, I'll give you a couple examples. When I was in fourth grade, I had a boy call me. It should be really exciting. He wanted me to go with him. Back in the 80s, that was a phrase. And she didn't know what it meant. She thought I was lying. So she asked me to put my tongue 
on a cutting board and she was going to chop it off. So I sat there and begging for my tongue for an hour because a boy had called me to go out with him. Um, so that was the story of my growing up. I never knew when I was going to be in trouble, if it was going to be a slap or a hit or one of her other favorite things to do was to um, tell you she was sending you to an orphanage and how do you sit in a car, whether it was low zero or 100 degrees out, thinking you were going to the orphanage because you've been bad. And see, my whole life I thought, this is my mom, I'm supposed to love her, you know? I'm supposed to, all I want is love. So I thought if I was the best kid in the world, I could get that love from her. But that was never gonna happen. Um, my senior year, I wanted to go to college out of state, of course. I wanted to get as far away from home as I possibly could. And I had applied to North Park in Chicago and been accepted and um, was told I couldn't go to school out of state. I even earned a $10,000 scholarship to Jamestown, North Dakota. That's how desperate I was to get out of <laughs> the town I grew up in and away from her. But um, they wouldn't fill out my financial aid forms and I wasn't allowed to go to um, college. Uh, they wouldn't help, and at that time you had to be 21, I think, to get emancipated and all this stuff was happening. And the day after graduation, I came home and she tried to beat the crap out of me, and I moved out. So I'm in a small town, <laughs> and in the, you know, that it was 88. Let's drink all the time, and I knew nothing about sex because, of course, she would never tell me about sex. So shocker, at 19, I got pregnant, and I hid the fact that I was pregnant for seven months. So when people ask me how I knew I was an actor, if I can do that, <laughs> I can do anything. Um, but I finally, of course, had to say, I'm pregnant. And this person who had filled my life with all this dread all of a sudden was saying, you know, I love you and let's get you set up. And, you know, she was being the mother that I always wanted. So it was like the best thing ever. I was going to be a mom and I had my mom and she was in the delivery room. And so a year later, I'm going to start college before Gabrielle's going to be a year old and my car broke down. Before that, I'd been driving back and forth to school, and then um, my car broke down, and she decided, well, I'll help you out. Why don't you stay with friends in Wilmer, and we'll keep Gabrielle here for you, and we'll take, oh, we'll just make life so perfect for you. And then it was, well, you know, it would be so much easier if we adopted her to help you out. It's all about you. So, of course, thinking, this is my mom. Why would she want me? Yes, you know, we've had problems in the past, but it was because I was bad or I was this. It was always about me. It was not the fact that I didn't even know really that she had a drinking problem until I realized that not everybody's parents got drunk. <laughs> so, you know, um, they finally talked me into it. And what I thought was the adoption agency was actually a notary. Um, I was never told about the court appearance. Um, I signed the papers. I didn't know. I didn't have a lawyer. I had no one. She had, they had promised me a separate contract that would state that once I was done with college, I could get custody back. So when I went to the notary, there was no lawyer. There was no letter. Oh, it's being done. You'll get it. So of course I signed it because, again, this is your mother. Why would she lie to you? And the minute I signed that paper, my life changed. My family pretty much disowned me. She had told everybody I was a drunk. Uh, I was mentally ill, anything to try to get sympathy on her side. She was really good at getting people to believe her stories. And so not only did I lose my daughter, I lost my mother, my family, because they all believed her, because why would she lie? You know, she has all this money in this big house, and I'm just some college kid who doesn't know 
that I should have had a lawyer, that I, d I didn't know that I could ask for help. And that, I think that's probably what's bothered me about this with everything going on with women. You know, I was 18 in a small town, no Planned Parenthood, nobody to talk to, nobody to, you know, when I found out, when I went to the doctor to find out I was pregnant <laughs> at seven months, which I already knew, half the town knew. This is where, you know, at that time it wasn't, we're not gonna say anything. You know, like my stepdad found out even before we told him, like the entire town was talking about it. There was no privacy, there was no one to say, hey, maybe you shouldn't sign that paper. My friends who, but they hated my mom. So years later, I moved to Duluth and I'm starting my life here and I've met my husband now, Chuck, and um, my mother got cancer. Colon cancer, stage four, had gone through her lymph nodes, thought she was gonna die. So I'm forgiving, I'm thinking, okay, universe, you know, she's gonna die, I wanna make peace, I don't wanna be mad, I don't wanna be, I'm trying to have a relationship with Gabrielle and of course she didn't die. That woman will never die. Um, you, you gotta have a sense of humor when you come from this kind of family. So uh, we started to try to have a little bit of a relationship. I would get to see Gabrielle here or there, but it was still tense. And then um, my husband and I were trying, we got married and we're trying to have kids and we couldn't get pregnant and couldn't get pregnant. We finally got pregnant and we lost one. And then um, she was, that was of course my fault. Um, you know, God was punishing me for getting pregnant at 17. So of course I deserve that. And then um, my son has autism. And when he got diagnosed, she told me that um, he didn't really have autism, we're just lazy parents. So she made it really hard, but I kept trying. I kept trying to be that daughter, trying to love her. And then um, I don't remember the year we were doing Motherhood Out Loud and my stepdad got diagnosed with leukemia in April and he died um, in June. And I went there and I took care of everything for her. The funeral, the thank you notes, the flowers, the arrangements, getting his ashes, everything. I, anytime she called me home, I went. Like anything she ever needed. You know, and her drinking got worse. And then I find out she's got a gambling problem and she's borrowing money and anything I can do. And then, and then she tells me she's dying. The cancer's back. When she has four months to a year and I'm in the middle of doing Dancing at Lunasa it was my dream role. I'm doing the show that I love and I'm traveling back and forth for work to Las Vegas and I had to tell my boss that I couldn't go anymore because she was dying and I wanted to be there because my dad had died in December and we were all there for him and it was a beautiful experience and I didn't want this woman, even after everything she's done, to die by herself. So I tell my boss and I'm gonna quit this show and no, 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 don't quit the show. We'll if Everybody was telling me if something happens, we'll make it work. Well. That was, I believe, September. So February, she's still here, and I'm freaking out, like, do I quit my job? Do I go take care of her? Do I get hospice? Like, I didn't know what to do. So I call her doctor, and I'm hysterical, like, you know, what do I do? You know, doctors aren't supposed to tell you anything. It's, I forgot the name of the. HIPAA. Yeah, thank you. And he told me, Michelle, you sound so upset, and you're so far away, and I have to tell you, she's not dying. I never told her she had four months to a year. We don't do that anymore. She doesn't take the tests that she's supposed to. Okay, mind blown, anger. Every emotion that I've been bottling for all these years starts to just, and then Gabrielle calls and tells me she's pregnant and her and her fiance are gonna have a baby and 
again, all these things, all these things I've missed out on her life, our life together, and because of this person. And I finally had had enough. So on my birthday, I was like, I can't do this anymore. And I told her that you're done. You've hurt my children, you've hurt me, and for the first time in my life, I stood up to her. And then immediately went into therapy. <laughs> I uh, haven't done theater for a while because I've been kind of putting myself back together because it was a lot. Like stuff you've repressed for many years, going, you know, I don't remember this, and of course you have to get through it to become better. So um, I'm just trying to be a good mom. And today I was throwing away some of my like comfort like fat pants, <laughs> sweatshirts, because I'm done hiding. This is my story, this is my life. You don't get to put me in a corner and tell me that I was bad, that I was a bad kid, that I'm a bad person, because I'm not. And I deserve to be happy. And thank you, that's my story. tell a story. Uh, I am so fucking pissed off what's happening in this country. <laughs> I just got to call that out. Um, it appears that we are slipping backwards. I don't think it's true. I think that this is the backlash that can be expected before every major leap forward. Um, hold on to your seats, hold on to your hats. They're coming for our uteruses. I'm gonna tell my, I'm gonna tell my abortion story. Um, I don't think that we should have to share these terrible things to be trusted and to be taken seriously, uh, but my abortion story um, is one of great joy and I like to share it. Uh, feel free to ask questions. Um, I'm gonna start the story, however, by telling you uh, I, I stopped having a relationship with my dad about a year ago. And um, we were out, I used, to, I used to try to meet him wherever I could so that I could have his approval and his love and we were out for a walk on a dirt road in Twig. And we were walking and talking and everything seems fine and then he starts going off on this anti-abortion tirade. And my dad is, um, 53, no, 63. Well, I was like, he's really young. He, I mean, he was 10. No, he's uh, <laughs> 63, and he's he's a good-looking fella. He's um, he was in a band, you know. Seems pretty cool. He's a cool guy, uh, but he's going on this weird tirade, and um, I let him go on for about 20 minutes, and I just listened and I listened and I listened, and. I finally turned to him and I said, you know, you paid for me to have an abortion when I was 17. Do you remember that? And his face turned like white as a ghost. And he said, don't you ever tell your grandfather. You know, that was it. And I found myself brave enough to say, like, you're an adult. And you are making life choices and you're still afraid of what your dad is going to think, and it helped to put into perspective how we've gotten here. Like, there's so much stigma around this thing that's quite common and quite necessary. So when I was 17, I was going to beauty school in St. Cloud, 
And I had a boyfriend at the time who was um, beginning to experience uh, schizoaffective disorder. And he became very scary during this time. And at one point, he maced me. Um, around that time, I found out I was also pregnant with his child. And I found out pretty early on, because I get real sick with my pregnancies. So I called up my mom. And she's like, well, you got to decide what you want to do. And at first, I was like, I'll keep it. No, not a good idea <laughs> for 17-year-old Adeline. Um, so then I decided to go to the Building for Women here. And I um, think that's a really important organization. But I had a terrible experience. Um, this was a million years ago, as you can imagine. And as I was being uh, given a vaginal ultrasound to, to see you know, the, the zygote, um, the woman noticed I was crying. And she said, stop, you're crying. You got yourself into this mess. And, you know, thank goodness I'm <laughs> intact and fierce. And I, you know, I pulled the thing out of me and I got up and left. But I thought, you know, oh my God, what do I do now, you know? So my mom found the Meadowbrook uh, Clinic in the Twin Cities and we made arrangements to go down there the next week. So I went down to the Meadowbrook Clinic where um, there was an entire room of about this many people waiting for their appointments, uh, many of which had been going through days and days of dilation, which is where they take a piece of seaweed that expands and they put it into your cervix so that they can get the cannula up there. And um, it was a pretty somber room and I was very, very nervous and I had to go in out of the lobby and into the clinic by myself. So I go into the clinic and they make me watch this terrible video, which I think is some weird legal thing where you have to like know exactly what's gonna happen. And then I get led back into the, the, uh, the room. And in the room is this very sweet middle-aged woman and the doctor. And um, she can tell I'm scared, so she held my hand and sang to me the entire time. And I was so sick for the many weeks before uh, having my abortion that I didn't, you know, I was like vomiting all the way up until the procedure. And um, immediately following the procedure, my hormones rebalanced and I stopped feeling sick. And I couldn't stop laughing. Like I was just like singing <laughs> and laughing and so relieved to not be bringing um, a child into my life at that time, but also to not be passing along really severe mental health, health issues that my boyfriend was up against. Um, but I walked out into the lobby and because I was so giddy, like I kind of broke the ice and all these women that were in this lobby, it was like this big horseshoe, I, I was singing and laughing, and they all started laughing with me and clapping. And so it felt like I was in like this joyful movie where all of a sudden like everything was gonna be okay. And I am so grateful that I had the opportunity to access that. Um, 
because I love being a mom, and I am an amazing mom, but I would not have been intact at that point in my life to provide for that child. So that's my abortion story. Um, it, it didn't hurt very bad. Uh, it was quick. I felt respected. I did get good care, and we need to fight like hell to keep that going in the United States. a piece called The Solstice Glide and it was written in the dark time, the dark solstice. And um, it uh, is a very true story. It um, happened at a, at a point in my life in about a three month period I lost I don't know, five, six, seven family member, friends, just you know, circle people. And uh, you know, that's what we signed up for. The mortal, mortal coil is, is here to get us. And uh, so, at any rate, I am happy to report that at least I could say, uh, I've got the artist helmet, and what am I going to do about this? I, I can fix that, I can fix. And um, so, this song came from that. It's not a bummer song, it's, it's a means of uh, uh, honoring and calling in those who left or, or moved along, wherever they go. And um, so to kind of problem solve my way through that, um, I turned to um, my favorite music city in the world, and that's New Orleans. And how they do a funeral down there, you may be aware, is, is they, they may have a big second line brass band and drums at your graveside, and they're going to um, sing you to your next home. And they start out very solemn at your graveside. And um, so I took the architecture of the way that that processional goes and um, uh, applied it to my problems. And uh, so this is, uh, this is a bit of a, a nod to the way the New Orleanians might take care of this problem. So it starts out very quietly at the graveside. And by the time you get 10, 12 blocks down the Boulevard, you're partying pretty hard and celebrating those lives. So, something like that. Here comes the Solstice Glide again. Thanks so much.
I'm Adeline Wright, host of Gag Me with a Spoon. Thanks to our listeners, studio audience, storytellers, Zeitgeist Arts, and all of you who participated tonight. Our producer, Brooks Johnson, our sound engineer, Jake Nelson, our front of the house manager, Serena White, and all of you. Good night. <laughs>